Welcome back to the long-awaited return of the unofficial Magic the Gathering audiobooks podcast. I am Phil Dawson, and I am grateful for all of you listening as we are ready to begin book three of the Artifact Cycle, Time Streams. I truly want to thank those who have listened and written to me with words of encouragement and telling me how they are enjoying things. It's been fun to hear from those who also are just getting started on listening, and of course those who have been keeping up with the live episodes. It's just truly a pleasure and an honor to do my best for you fans to enjoy these great books. I also want to thank those of you who have joined the Discord. It's pretty fun to get to know some fellow listeners and fans of the lore. So if you'd like to join, you can. We have a link in the show notes. And since our last chapter of Planeswalker, we have a slew of new patrons who, like, I can barely put into words what that means to me. I am really humbled by your support. And again, if you want to join up and support the continued creation of these, it is really cool. Uh, So with that being said, I want to welcome, we have our first content Planeswalker tier supporters, supporters, actually, Planeswalker couple, Jeff and Max. Thank you for being here, being active in the Discord, and just being generally awesome. We have a content human, James, has also joined up. Thank you so much, James. A content goblin, and Nando Bueno, who's also getting in. And a content angel, Anthony. It really means a lot. It really does. And if you're looking for what the Patreon gives you, um, it just brings you closer to me and what life is like surrounding the creation of this and giving you full access to all things magic and everything else that is going on with me and the creation of this. And I'm just really trying to add value to the fandom for those supporters and Uh, I hope they're liking it. Uh, For those of you who are also just listeners, no sweat. Thank you so much as well. All I ask, if you are listening on Spotify, give this sucker a five-star rating. As of this recording, we have 56 ratings, all of them five stars, which is like ridiculous in itself and almost like a running gag at this point. Let's keep this bad boy five stars because, look, like me, to me, this thing is and will forever be five stars. So I hope that's the same for you. Uh, And if you do want to reach out, I really like hearing from you. It makes me feel great. Let me know what you think, where you're listening from. A quick thank you really makes my day. So I'd appreciate it. And I do appreciate you for listening. Okay, people, this is it. We're about to kick off some wild time shenanigans. I hope you're ready. Let's do this. Time Streams J. Robert King Magic The Gathering Artifact Cycle Book 3 Prologue Urza says he's sane. Perhaps he is. Measures of sanity among his planeswalkers are hard to come by. He has lived for over 3,000 years. He heals by merely willing it. With the thought, he steps from world to world to world. His very appearance is a matter of convenience. Clothes and even features projected by his mind. How can conventional notions of sanity apply to a planeswalker? Perhaps they cannot, but his madness began before he was a planeswalker. Three thousand years ago, a mortal Urza battled his mortal brother. Their sibling rivalry turned fratricidal. So began the Brothers' War. 
In his rage to kill Mishra, Urza enlisted the armies of the world, sank the Isle of Argoth, gutted the continent of Teresier, and wiped whole nations from the globe. He ushered in an ice age. In repayment for all this madness, he became a planeswalker. Urza says he regrets the destruction. True regret would be a good sign. It wasn't regret that later sent Urza on his own private invasion of Phyrexia. It was revenge for his brother. Somehow, Urza convinced himself he hadn't killed Mishra, that the Phyrexian Gix had done it. True, Gix seduced Mishra with promises of awesome power and in the end transformed him into a monstrous amalgam of flesh and artifice, but Urza was Mishra's slayer. Not in his mind, though. In the mind of madness, Urza blamed Gix and plotted to get even. His motive was mad, and his invasion matters still. Urza attacked Phyrexia, one planeswalker, against armies of demonic monstrosities. He lost, of course. He couldn't defeat a whole world and was nearly torn to pieces trying. Tail between his legs, Urza retreated to Sarah's realm, a place of angels and floating clouds. There he convalesced, but he never truly recovered. Madness still haunted him, and so did Phyrexia. Gix followed on his tail. No sooner had Urza left Sarah's realm, thinking himself whole and hale, than Gix and his demons arrived. A war began in heaven. That place, like any other where Urza had chosen to dwell, was decimated. Centuries later, it's still shrinking in its long collapse. When I point out these mad indiscretions, Urza shrugs. He claims he regained his sanity after all that. He credits his newfound perspective to Zancha and Radipi, two dear friends who sacrificed themselves to slay the demon Gix, closed the portal to Phyrexia and saved my life. To them, I am forever grateful. True gratitude would be a good sign, too. Urza has never, in his three millennia of life, shown true gratitude, nor had a dear friend. I have known him for three decades. For two of those, I have worked side by side with him at the academy we established here on Talaria. I am not his dear friend. No one is. Most of the tutors and students at the academy don't even know his real name, calling him Master Malzra. The last person who was close enough to Urza to be a dear friend was his brother, and everyone knows what happened to him. No. Urza is incapable of regret and gratitude of having dear friends. Not that there haven't been folks like Zancha Radipi, Sarah, and I who genuinely love the man and would give our lives for him, but he seems incapable of returning our affection. That's not enough to declare him insane, of course. As I said, measures of sanity amongst planeswalkers are hard to come by. But there is something mad about Urza's blithe belief that Zancha and Radipi sacrificed themselves, that Sarah's realm and Argoth sacrificed themselves, that Mishra sacrificed himself. It seems everyone and everything Urza claims to care about gets destroyed. And what does that mean for me, his newest dear friend? Baron, Mage Master of Talaria. Part 1. School of Time Chapter 1 Joyra stood at the edge of her world. Behind her lay the Isle of Talaria, 
palm forests and lecture halls overrun with magical prodigies and clockwork creatures. It was a realm of ceaseless tests and pointless trials and worries and work. Lots of work. Before her lay the blue ocean, the blue sky, and the illimitable world. Clouds piled into Emprian mountain ranges above the shimmering sea. White waves broke on the ragged rocks below. Beyond the thin, brilliant line of the horizon, the whole world waited. Her soulmate was out there somewhere, she dreamed. Everything was out there. Her homeland, her parents, her shivan tribe, her future. Joyra sighed and slouched down to sit on a sun-warmed shoulder of sandstone. Sea wind sent her long black hair dancing about her thin shoulders. Breezes coursed, warm and familiar, through her white student robes. She'd spent many hours in this sunny niche, her refuge from the academy. But lately, the hideaway brought her as much sadness as joy. She'd been at the academy for eight years now, learning all she could of machines. Prodigy when she arrived, Joyra was now a formidable artificer. She was also a woman, or at 18 nearly so, and was weary of the school and the kids of brimstone and machine oil. She was sick to death of artifice and illusion and wanted something real, someone real. Joyra closed her eyes, drawing a deep breath of salty air into her lungs. Her soulmate would be tall and bronze-skinned like a young Gitu tribesman back home, keen-eyed and strong. He'd be smart, yes, but not like Teferi and the other boys who tried to get Joyra's attention through juvenile antics and unsubtle innuendos. He would be a man. He would be mysterious. That was most important of all. She could not be in love with a man unless, at the core of his being, there was mystery. She opened her eyes and shifted her weight, one sandal sending a puff of dust. I'm a fool. There's not a man like that in the world. Even if there were, she'd never get to meet him. Not while she was stuck on this blasted island. Standing, the silver man awoke. He had moved before, had walked and spoken before. He'd occupied this enormous body of metal, peered out of its silvery eyes and lifted things in its massive hands. Before, it had been always as if in a dream. Now, he was awake. Now, he was alive. The laboratory around him was bright and clean. Master Malzra liked it clean. Clean, but cluttered. One wall held hundreds of sketches and refinements of sketches, some in ink, some in lead, some in chalk. Another bristled with specialized implements, metal lathes, beam saws, injection molds, presses, rollers, bellows, drills. A third wall bore racks of cogs and struts and other mechanical castings. A fourth held ranks of assembled mechanisms. A fifth, very few of the school's rooms were square, allowed egress into the room. In the center of the space, a great black forge rose. Its smokestack climbed up and away through the dome above. A second-floor gallery ringed the fringes of the room. Up in those balconies, even now, young eyes peered down on the result of Master Malzra's latest experiment. They peered down on the Silver Man. The Silver Man peered back. He felt frightened, awkward, shy. He wondered what they thought about him, wondered and cared in a way he never had before. Everything was like that. He had seen this laboratory many times before, but he never would have used terms like clean and cluttered and bright to describe it or the man who had created it. Now the Silver Man perceived more than just things. He perceived the organization of things, their disposition and what they implied about their creator. The laboratory was a study in the mind of Master Malzra. Ancient, obsessed, brilliant, tireless, preoccupied, short-sighted, grandiose. Master Malzra, meanwhile, studied him. The man's gaze was penetrating, full.
folds of aged skin drew up skeptically beneath one eye. His nostrils flared, but he didn't seem to breathe at all. One soot-blackened hand trembled slightly as he raised it to scratch his ash-blond beard. He swallowed, blinking, but with eyes like that, as hard and sharp as diamonds, it seemed he didn't need to blink at all. Any noticeable change in the probe's energy profile, Baron? Malzora asked over his shoulder. It was a strange greeting. The silver man felt somewhat offended. Reasonable enough question, came the response from Malzra's second, a master mage. Baron stepped from beside an injection mold. He wiped grit from his hands with a white cloth. Why don't you ask him? Malzra blinked again. Ask whom? Ask him, the mage repeated, quirking one corner of his mouth. The probe. Malzra pursed his lips. He nodded. Probe! I am Master Malzra, your creator. I wish to know if you notice any change in your energy profile. I remember who you are, responded the silver man. His voice was deep and resonant in his metal form. And I notice a very definite change in my energy profile. I am awake. A sibilance of voices came from the balcony. Malzra seemed almost to smile. Ah, you are awake. Good. As you are doubtless aware, we've made some modifications to you, hoping to enhance your performance, your intellect, and your capacity for social integration. He ground his teeth and could not seem to come up with anything else. Malzra glanced back to Baron for help. The mage, lean, middle-aged, in a white work smock, approached. He patted the silver man's shoulder. Hello. We're glad you've woken up. How do you feel? Confused, the silver man heard himself say. Then in a voice of wonder, he went on. Everything seems to have a new dimension. I'm filled with conflicting information. Baron asked. Conflicting information? Yes, replied the silver man. I sense, for example, that though Master Malzer is your superior in rank and age, he often defers to you in his social disinclinations. Social disinclinations, Baron prompted. He prefers the company of machines to that of people, clarified the silver man. Titters of humor came from the gallery. Malzra's expression darkened as he glanced up. The probe continued. Even now, I perceive that my observation, though accurate, displeases Master Malzra, amuses the students, and embarrasses you. Baron flushed slightly. True enough, he turned to Malzra. I could run some magical tests, but even without them, it's clear the intellectual and emotional components of the implant are functioning. Only too well, responded Malzra ruefully to the delight of the watchers in the gallery. Still, I would be just as glad for further tests of these components to occur outside of my company. In other words? Send out the probe. Let it interact with the students. We can monitor its progress, Malzra instructed. Baron looked levelly at the probe. Wisdom and magic danced in the man's brown eyes. You heard what he said. Go out, explore, meet some people, make some friends. We will recall you when we're ready for more experimentation. The silver man acknowledged these instructions by moving toward the door. As he shuffled past lathes and drill presses, the probe marveled at the resentment he felt toward his creator. Malzra had referred to him as an it. Baron had referred to him as you. As if reading his mind, Baron approached the silver man and patted his shoulder once again. You were right about Master Malzra's social disinclinations, that he likes machines better than people. What you didn't recognize is that he got flustered in dealing with you. The silver man's response was sullen. I recognize that all too clearly. Yes, Baron said. But that means he doesn't think of you as a machine, not any longer. To him, you're becoming a person, 
As the probe and the students filed out of the laboratory, Baron drew Urza to a wall of sketches. There, in diagrams of lead and ink, the Silver Man was detailed, inside and out. Well, you were right, Baron said quietly. Zancha's heart was the key. Her affective and intellectual cortexes must be intact, as you thought. We could be thankful that none of her memories remained, or her personality, apparently. Still, I have to wonder about the wisdom of placing what amounts to a Phyrexian matrix into the head of your most powerful and advanced creation. I could have achieved the same effect with an animation spell, the master waved off the comment. I wanted to achieve sentience through purely mechanical means. Besides, there's nothing Phyrexian about the heart crystal anymore. There's not even anything of Zancha left in it. Just enough of a matrix to allow logical, emotional, and social learning. Baron winced slightly at the man's choice of words. Yes, well, that's the other matter. What we've got here is no longer just a machine. You know it, and I know it. So does the probe. You gave him emotions. You need to acknowledge those emotions. You need to respect those emotions. Only a blank stare answered him. D don't you see? This is not just a probe anymore. He is a man. N no, more than that. He is a child. He'll need to be guided, uh, nurtured. The master looked stern. I wish you had brought this up before. We could have devised a rubric for handling this aspect of the probe's development. That's just it, replied Baron. You can't devise rubrics for this kind of thing. You can't chart it out in blueprints. You have to stop thinking like an artificer and start thinking like, well, a, a father. I was an orphan at twelve. Misha and I both. We turned out all right. The mage snorted just slightly at that. If you wish, I will act as the probe's mentor in your place, but in time... You're going to need to create that bond yourself, and that will mean telling him who you really are, telling him he was created by Urza Planeswalker. Master Molzra's laboratory had been daunting enough for the Silverman and his new intellectual cortex. The corridors and spaces beyond the lab, tutorial rooms, lecture halls, surgical theaters, wind tunnels, test chambers, and countless more laboratories were overwhelming. In gazing at these elaborate structures, the probe understood at last what a school was, a building designed to aid in gaining new knowledge, communicating it to others and applying it in invention. This was a revelation. His creators needed to learn. They were not all-knowing angels, driven by logical necessity and an apprehension of the ascendant good. They were ignorant animals, ennobled only by their insatiable curiosity, and some were less ennobled than others. Out to ferry! offered a boy who capered into the silver man's path and stopped stock still, as if daring the half-ton creature to walk over him. I'm the magical prodigy. He followed the introduction with a snap of his fingers, sending blue sparks bursting through the air. The probe stopped in his tracks to get a better look at the young scholar. Teferi's face was small, dark, and impish. Tussled black hair jutted wildly about his gleaming eyes. He wore the manifold white robes of a Talarian student, at his waist, a leather sash held his personal array of crystals, wands, and fetishes. His feet were bare in defiance of school policy, though his toenails bore strange legends in bright, glossy paint. He held one of his hands out formally toward the probe. The silver man extended his own massive hand and lightly shook the boy's whole arm. I'm Master Moser's probe. No sooner had he taken the boy's hand than the probe noticed a strange, stinging jolt in his silver hide. Your handshake is shocking. The lad pulled his hand away and shrugged, seeming somehow disappointed. Just a spell I've been working on. Knocks people on their butts, not golems, I guess. Say, what kind of name is Master Mulzer's probe, anyway? It is the only name I have, replied the probe, truthfully. Teferi's face rumpled and he shook his head. Not good enough. 
You got a personality now. You need a real name. Other young students were gathering in the corridor behind Teferi, and they leaned inward, anticipating something. I'm unfamiliar with naming procedures. Teferi gave a confident smile. Oh, I'm quite familiar. Let's see. You're big and shiny. What else is big and shiny? The Null Moon. Why don't we call you the Null Man? The students laughed at this suggestion. The probe felt a sense of irritation. That sounds unsatisfactory. Null means nothing. Your suggestion would imply that I am a nothing man. Teferi nodded seriously, though a smirk played about his mouth. We can't have that. Anyway, you aren't really a man. You're an artifact. Artie would be a nice name for you. Artie the Artifact. The probe could not determine any reason to reject this suggestion, aside from the chuckles of the students. Artie is a name used among humans? Oh, yes, replied Teferi enthusiastically. As a first name, but most humans also have a last name. Let's see, you are Silver... What else is made of silver? Spoons are, and since you're large, we ought to name you after the largest spoon. A ladle, or perhaps a shovel. Thus, your full name should be Artie Ladlepate, or Shovelhead. The young folks seemed to giggle at any and every suggestion made to them. The silver man became less concerned about their amusement. Whichever name sounds more pleasant to human ears, oh, either name will bring a smile to anyone who hears it. Still, ladlebait sounds a little too uppity, and if we're putting on airs, Shovelhead is more accessible. I vote for Artie Shovelhead. What say the rest of you? The gathered students cheered excitedly, and the silver man could not help but being swept up in the mood. At the moment, any name seemed better than no name. I shall then be Artie Shovelhead, the probe said solemnly. Come along then, Shovelhead said Teferi grandly, gesturing down the corridor with his boyish arm. Streamers of conjured illumination fanned out from his fingers. I have much to show you. The crowd of students surged up around the probe and dragged at his cold metal hands with their warm fingers. He plodded along among them, careful not to step on their feet. The entourage of children led the probe along as though he was a visiting dignitary. They arrived first at a large dining hall with ivory rafters and soaring walls of alabaster. Beneath this white vault were long, dark tables crowded with more students who bent above bowls of gruel and platters of hard crackers and cheese. This is the Great Hall, narrated Teferi. This is where we students eat. The food is specially prepared so that nothing about it could distract us from our studies. Notice the bland colors and mean consistency of it all? The flavors are even more indistinguishable. No one could gnaw at one of those crackers and spend even a moment to contemplate its non-existent virtues. The probe could tell that this boy had an acute grasp of truth behind appearances. Master Molzer must care greatly about your studies. Teferi laughed, though the sound was rueful. Oh, yes, he nurtures our minds like a farmer nurtures grain. He heaps manure on our heads, knowing we will rise up through it, despite it to bear richly, and then he comes along with a scythe and cuts off our heads to nourish his own appetites. It is a fine arrangement, depending on who you are. He had said this last bit while leading the probe and his companions down the passageway to another chamber, similar to the first except that the vault overhead was dark and the students at the long tables were crouched over sheets of paper, quill pens scraping fitfully across them. Here is part of the diet of manure I spoke of. These students are copying plans and treaties of Master Molzra, Mage Baron, and other scholars. It is insidiously copying the scribbles of our betters that we become consummate scribblers ourselves. The probe was appreciative. What do these plans and treaties describe? Machines, such as yourself. Gadgets, mainly. It's got a whole mausoleum, um, that is, museum, filled with artifact creatures. You'll be there, too, soon enough. 
Master Malzra has a very active imagination and puts it to great use, devising elaborate means to save himself a little bit of labor. He's created numerous devices to more quickly and efficiently cook the gruel and crackers, to more effectively limit the freedom of those under his command, to more completely defend all of us against external foes so that he alone can torment us. The Silver Man felt uncomfortable with this new line of thought. External foes? What foes does Mosra have? All. Everyone is against him, or didn't you know? said Teferi lightly as they moved further down the hallway. He idly conjured a small knife, whirled it deftly between his fingers, then dispelled it. Uh, at least that's what Mulza thinks. He's got clockwork creatures and actual warriors roaming the walls around the academy at all hours, and claymen trampling through the woods by the sea, and, and gear work birds that spy on the island. I myself have never heard of a single real enemy, but Mulza spends so much time creating these machines and recreating them and perfecting them, there must be something more than psychotic paranoia at the root of it, what not you think? I suppose so, the silver man answered. They came to another room, this one filled with dissected hulks of metal, leaning clockwork warriors, dismantled machines, piles of rusted scrap iron, and at the far wall a great open furnace. Workers on one side of the blazing forge shoveled coal into the flames and pumped massive bellows. Workers on the other side dumped bins of spare parts into the great vats of molten metal. Throughout the rest of the grimy chamber, students moved among the ruined machines like vultures, picking at a battlefield of dead. A shiver of dread moved through the probe. Teferi noticed the impulse and smiled grimly. See, Artie? Even if Malzra had no other enemies, his old creations could easily turn on him. They should. They certainly have reason to hate him. Malzra quickly tires of his playthings. I can imagine a legion of metal men such as yourself learning that Malzra planned to melt them down. They could escape across the sea. I can imagine whole nations of clockwork creatures who have fled their creator only to muster themselves in hopes of returning and killing him. The silver man was aghast. How could an artifact creature ever seek to destroy the artifact creator? Give it a year, Artie, the fairy said lightly, though none of the students laughed this time. The boy patted the golem's arm. Give it a year. Two at the outside and you'll be facing that fiery furnace. It's the way of artifice. When you're in pieces in that room, then ask yourself what you think about Master Mulzra. Joyra was again in her rocky haven from the world. She spent less and less time in the academy and more and more time here, dreaming of far-off places and futures. A white flapping motion caught her eye, there along the shore, between two fingers of stone. Something was moving. It looked like a seagull's wing, only too large. A pelican? A white sea lion? Joyra blinked, rubbing her eyes. The sea and sky were dazzling here. Maybe it was only a glaring bit of foam. No, it was more than that. It looked like fabric, perhaps another student? Joyra slid from the sandstone ledge and eased herself down to the tumbled hillside. One edge of the white fabric was tied to something rigid, a spar. It was a sail. Joyra descended more quickly. Her sandal soles slid on pea gravel and sand. She thrashed past a break of grass and clambered down the cleft between two wind-carved stones. The space gave out onto a wide beach of beige sand broken by rills of craggy black stone. Above one such rill, a latine-rigged sail jutted flag-like from a shattered wooden hull. The impact had staved the boat's prow and splintered the timbers amidship. Since then, the rocks had chewed away at the frame, each new wave grinding the hull again on the ragged stones. Joyra approached cautiously. So few ships arrived at Talaria. Most were the Academy's own supply vessels, captained by seamen hand-picked by Master Molzra. 
the island was too remote, too removed from trade routes to attract other ships. This boat must have drifted for some distance off course before crashing. Perhaps it was abandoned. Perhaps its crew had been washed overboard. Joira craned her neck as she neared, looking for signs of life in the ruined hulk. Her sandal prints filled with salty water behind her. She reached the stony outcrop and climbed up above the pitching wreck. It was a small craft, the sort that might have been manned by a crew of five or a crew of one. The deck was in disarray, lines lashing loosely, small barrels rolling within each sea surge. The hatch was open, and in the dark hold, Joyra glimpsed gulls fighting over bits of hard tack that had spilled from broken crates. The mainmast was cracked, though it still held aloft the raked sail, and the mainsail sheet was cleated off, as if the boat had been at full sail when it struck the stone. It must have run aground last night, when the glimmer moon had been obscured by a midnight storm. The bow was gone entirely, but the stern remained. A narrow set of stairs led downward to a small doorway. The captain's quarters would lie beyond. "'What are you doing?' Joyra asked herself worriedly as she clambered down the boulder where the ship was impaled, lifted one leg over the starboard rail, and hauled herself onto the pitching deck. "'This thing could come loose any moment and roll over and drag me out to sea!' Even so, she crawled forward, reached the set of stairs that led down to the captain's quarter, and descended. She pulled open the red door and cringed back from the hot, stale air within. The space was dark and cramped. With each wave surge, the floor clattered with junk, a map tube, a lodestone, a stylus, a wrecked lantern, spanners, a slide rule, and other indistinguishable items. To one side of the cabin, a small table hugged the wall. To the other were a pair of bunks. The bottom bell held a still figure. Dead, Joyra thought. The man lay motionless. Despite the tossing sea, his face was tanned beneath curls of golden hair. His jaw was shaggy with a week's growth of beard. His hands, large and strong, were laid across his chest in the attitude of death. Joyra backed away. Perhaps this was a plague ship, this man the last to succumb, with no one to throw him overboard. She had been a fool to climb aboard. Then he moved, he breathed, and she knew, even if it was plagued, she could not abandon him. Without another moment's hesitation, Joyra crossed the crowded cabin, stooped beside the bunk, and lifted the man. She had always been strong. The get-to of Shiv had to be strong. Shifting the man to her shoulder, she struggled out of the cabin and up the stairs. Navigating the rubble-strewn deck with a man on her shoulder was difficult, and Joyra stumbled twice. Gritting her teeth in determination, she made the rail. With a heart-rendering leap, she reached the rock and clung there. As if shifted by her jump, the broken craft heeled away from the crag. A wave crashed into it, lifting it up, and with a briny surge, the boat scraped up toward Joyra and her charge. She clambered to a higher spot on the rock. The wave tumbled back from the shore, taking the hulk with it. The mast rolled under and snapped like a twig. Shroud-like, the sail wrapped the splintered boat as it heaved outward onto the retreating wave. Broken barrels and other debris boiled in the wake of the boat. Panting, Joyra watched the broken mass of wreckage bob out into deeper water. The next wave rolled it once more, and then the ship disappeared. For some time, she could see it moving in the undertow like some white leviathan. Joyra waited for a break in the waves and climbed down from the stone. She crossed the sandy berm, tempted to set the man down there. A darting glance up the hilltop told her that no other students or scholars had seen the shipwreck or knew of the man, but others might come soon. The man would be as good as dead. Malzra did not suffer the arrival of strangers on his island paradise, and the students were sworn to report any such castaways they discovered. Joyra planned to report this one, of course, but she didn't want anyone else to know about him. Not yet. 
Strong though she was, the climb from the shore to her hideaway was a hot labor. When she arrived, she laid the man down in the sunny stretch of sandstone where she had spent so many afternoons. She checked for breath and pulse, found both, and set a hand on his brow to check for fever. He felt warm, though that might have been only from the sunlight. It was a better test for fever. Her heart pounding, she leaned over and kissed his forehead. Hot. Yes, very hot, Jorah said breathlessly. She removed her outer cloak, snagged a bit of scrub, and propped the fabric up over his face, shielding him from the sun. She retrieved a small canteen from her belt, parted the man's lips, and poured a cool trickle of water into his mouth. He was beautiful. Tan, strong, tall, and mysterious. That was the most important thing of all. The last drops fell from the canteen. You stay here, she whispered, patting his shoulder. Don't let anybody see you. I'll go get more water and blankets. Supplies. I'll take care of you. Stay here. Heart fluttering in her breast like a caged bird, Joyra hurried away from her secret spot and her secret stranger. Her footsteps had hardly faded beyond the rocky rise when the stranger's blue eyes opened. There was a gleam in them, something vaguely metallic. Might have been only the silver shimmer of clouds reflecting there, but there might have been something else to that gleam. Something mechanical. Something menacing. At last, Uzzah has done it. Making a machine that really lives. He's been working for 3,000 years to devise such a thing. Now that he has one, he doesn't know what to do with him. The Silver Man is engineered to let Urza return in time, even farther back than those 3,000 years, to the time of the ancient Thran. Urza hopes the probe can reach the time of that ancient race some six millennia in the past. If Urza himself could reach such a time, he could prevent the Thran from transforming into the race of half-flesh, half-machine abominations that seek to destroy life on Dominaria, thereby rectifying the error he and his brother Mishra made in opening the doors to Phyrexia. I've pointed out that unmaking the Phyrexians is tantamount of slaying all of us who have lived in this world since their creation. Still, Urza would rather wipe the slate clean than deal with his past, just as he did at Argoth. The disturbing thing is, he's making all the same mistakes over again. If he could only have embraced his brother instead of attacking him, if he could only have apologized for his arrogance and obsession and been reconciled, the brother's war would never have been fought. The Brotherhood of Gix would never have gotten a foothold in the world, and Argoth and most of Tarissier would not have been destroyed. If he had worked with his brother instead of against him, combining their genius and the power of both halves of the stone they had discovered, the pathway from Phyrexia might have been cut off the very day it was accidentally opened. Reconciliation is not in the man any more than regret or remorse or friendship. Every sin of omission Urza committed against his brother, he repeats now against his own students and his newborn silver man. Baron, Mage Master of Talaria.